you feel that your rights are violated by a vertical they posted? Yeah, it's, it's illegal. Sorry, you're cutting out a bit. It's, uh, yeah, the, it's in violation of uh, Section 319, incitement of hatred towards an identifiable group. Okay, CBC about that. Okay? No, no, I'm no. gonna let you go now. No, no, no. CBC doesn't cover that. I'm gonna charge you. Oh my god. In this recording, I'm going to give you some updates and some more details about the hate speech investigation that we've requested against the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Part of the reason I'm doing this is to keep our supporters informed and to demonstrate that we're doing everything that we can do and to keep you updated about some of the obstacles that we're dealing with and what we're doing to overcome them. The current stumbling block is the fact that the courthouses are all closed because of coronavirus. So in the meantime, I'm making a podcast. So first, I'm going to make some clarifications uh, about some things that people seem confused about. Then I'm going to explore some more of the theory that underlies this action. Specifically, I'm going to explore the question of with who are we in conflict or what are we in conflict with? That question is relevant when it comes to who are we actually going to charge for these crimes. Um, But another way of thinking about the problem at hand is not in terms of who are we in conflict with, but what are we in conflict with? And that's really how I'm more inclined to think of it. We're not in conflict with a specific individual or set of individuals. We are in conflict with an ideology. And therefore, who exactly gets reprimanded for communicating that ideology is of lesser importance than ensuring that someone is reprimanded. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Then I'm going to combine that discussion with the phone calls that I've had with police thus far, and I'm going to let you listen to those, and so maybe you'll find that fun. And another thing that I think is interesting, one of the themes that you'll notice throughout this whole process is just the fact of of what a mess the whole bureaucracy of the police is. Uh, First of all, their phone system is all messed up. Uh, Then when it comes to hate speech laws... Two of the officers who I spoke to didn't even know how to file a hate speech charge or, or to request a hate speech investigation. I spoke with two officers who didn't even know, who didn't seem to know uh, what our hate speech laws were or how they worked. And I think that this, but part of this is because it seems like just no one has any experience working with these laws. And it makes exploring this avenue valuable in and of itself just to, just to learn the ropes of how hate speech laws work in Canada, because it seems like no one really knows them. Of course, I've never filed a hate speech complaint before. This is my lawyer's first time going through this process. And I think most Canadian lawyers have never gone through this process because these laws have been employed so infrequently. Based on the research that I've done, I think that these laws have only been employed a handful of times since their creation in the 70s. And I want to do some more research, which might involve having to file freedom, freedom of information requests to pin down the exact statistics about these laws. But I think that they may have been employed as few as eight times. So anyway, I don't have any experience with this process. The vast majority of Canadian lawyers don't have experience with this process. And as you'll see, 
Most cops don't seem to have experience with hate speech laws either. And the fact that no one knows what they're talking about is itself an obstacle and one that we're, we're having to overcome and learn the ropes of during this process. So here we go. First, I want to reiterate the point that I've made before, which is that officially these charges are being requested in my name, George Hutchison, not in the name of Students for Western Civilization. I'm the director of SWC, but it's not SWC which is requesting the charges. It's me, George Hutchison. Second point is that some people seem to think that this is a lawsuit. This isn't a lawsuit. We're not suing the CBC. I'm not arguing that the CBC should have to pay monetary compensation for what they've published. This is a request for a criminal investigation for the charge of willfully promoting hatred towards an identifiable group in violation of Section 319 of the Criminal Code. The identifiable group in question is white people or European Canadians. The maximum sentence for that crime isn't being forced to pay monetary compensation. The maximum sentence is to spend two years in prison. Okay, this is a criminal, a criminal issue, not a lawsuit. And the third thing that I want to clarify is that, so my understanding is that you can sue a corporation, uh, but you can't, you don't charge a corporation. You can't put a corporation in jail. So the, this, this investigation that we're requesting, this is of individuals within the CBC, not the CBC itself. And so that brings me to this interesting question of which individuals specifically we're talking about who do we want these charges to be pressed against and why and the question of uh, you know what are we really in conflict with here so if you look back at students for western civilizations work since our founding in 2014 the ideology that's presented in this article is what we have been studying and critiquing since our formation. We tried to launch in January 2014, where we made the same arguments that we're making today, which is that this ideology, whatever you want to call it, Marxism, critical race theory, neo-Marxism, cultural Marxism, SJWism, social justice advocacy, whatever you want to call it, this ideology promotes hatred towards white people promotes animosity, resentment, and contempt. Marxists view politics in terms of oppressor and oppressed. Classical Marxists were most concerned with how the rich oppress the poor. Neo-Marxists are concerned with this narrative of how white people oppress non-white people. And also how men oppress women and how heterosexuals oppress homosexuals. But what I'm most concerned with with uh, the element of neo-Marxism that I'm most concerned with is that racial element. Um, this assumption, this worldview that looks at politics in terms of oppressor and oppressed, this promotes resentment towards white people. It's a form of scapegoating. They teach the idea that white people are holding you down, they are oppressing you, and you must rise up and oppress your oppressor. It's not difficult to see how that fundamental assumption of Marxism promotes resentment and animosity towards whichever group is identified as the oppressor. Outgrowths of that ideology are these six arguments 
which we have been addressing and studying for the past six years. The idea that all white people are racist, that only white people can be racist, that white people invented the concept of race and thereby invented racism as part of a conspiracy to oppress the rest of humanity, the idea of white privilege, the idea of white fragility, and the idea that all white countries are white supremacist countries. This article that was published by the CBC at least touches on five of those six arguments. The only thing that she doesn't explicitly pull out is the idea that white people invented race and thereby invented racism. So the author of this piece has has really contributed very little here. She's responsible for very little. She's created almost nothing. The only thing that she's responsible for is copying and pasting the talking points of people in power, which maybe she heard on MTV or in a Disney movie like Black Panther or some other Disney-owned outlet like Vice Magazine or in our government-funded universities or from a corporate diversity consultant on Bay Street or in Sri Paradkar's race and gender column in the Toronto Star. There's nothing original in any of this. She is just repeating and regurgitating the safe, easy, fashionable ideology of the people in power. Some uh, leftist critics of this project, of, of this, this hate speech investigation, have said, oh, you're such snowflakes. You're so fragile. Someone writes a little article and you flip out about it. But, but this, that's the point, is that this isn't one little article. This is a whole ideology which we were indoctrinated in in university and we've been studying for years. If it were just one little article, then we wouldn't care. If it were the case that this ideology was being espoused by disempowered crazy people in tinfoil hats on the street corner, then it wouldn't be a big deal. But that's not the case. This ideology is the religion of the state. It dominates institutions at the center of cultural influence, such as our universities. And uh, on that point, in her defense, I can envision the author of this article saying something to the effect that, well, in this article, I was just saying the things that society tells me to say, because that's what she's doing. Society encourages people to regurgitate this ideology, which promotes hatred towards white people. Check out this clip um, of Dr. Michael Capello's 2018 talk at Trent University uh, in Ontario called It's Okay to Be Against Whiteness. This is, this is the same talk that, that we reference in the announcement video for these charges. The guy who says, always punch a Nazi. This is him talking again about, um, about his, his ideology, whatever you call it. Most of my students are and I don't get run out of the University of Regina on a rail for saying these things. In fact, I get schools and school divisions and classrooms wanting to work with me. Right? Actually, this conversation is live. This conversation is ongoing. This is not something that we're shying away from. This is something increasingly we're embracing. I tell my students this all the time. This conversation is only going to get more important. It's not going away. We don't put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, we don't take a you know a half step towards equality and run away screaming like that's that's not going to work. That's not going to fly. And if they want jobs in the future, school divisions are going to increasingly look for people that can not only use this language but work in ways that support those most marginalized. You know what? My students, if they even pretend to use this language, get jobs. Right. You'll use this language to get a job regardless of where you stand with marginalized people. 
you demonstrate that you can use some of this language, right, and be a good liberal person, a good white person, you get a job. So no dispute there with Dr. Capello on that point. If you adopt this safe, fashionable, anti-white ideology, the system will reward you. You can get a job at a university like Capello himself has. You can become a corporate diversity consultant. You can get a column in the Toronto Star like Sri Paradkar or, or a job as a talking head on MTV like Francesca Ramsey, or you can get published in the CBC. If your guiding principle is just personal advancement, then to promote and espouse this ideology is a no-brainer. It's an easy decision because not only are there no consequences for espousing this ideology, but there are significant incentives. To challenge this ideology, on the other hand, takes serious conviction because if you're white and you challenge this ideology, you will be persecuted for it. You'll be called a Nazi and a racist and a supremacist. You can get fired from your job. You could even be violently attacked as Dr. Michael Capello encourages people to do. But if you join Dr. Capello down there on his knees, you will receive many pats on the head, just like he does. So when it comes to these charges, it's the ideology that we're in conflict with. This isn't a vendetta against some particular individual. This isn't about getting justice in the sense of getting revenge, in the sense of making someone else hurt for the damage that they've done. The, the lawyer that I've been working with had a good metaphor, which is he said that this isn't a sword, this is a shield. What's ultimately important here is not ensuring that some specific individual is punished. It's about protecting Europeans from this ideology which promotes resentment and animosity towards us. So therefore, who gets reprimanded is of lesser importance than ensuring that someone is reprimanded. What's important is sending the message that if you threaten Europeans, there will be consequences. If you threaten us, we're not just going to take it, we will respond. There's a Latin expression, nemo me impune lasasit, no one threatens me with impunity. Another way of defending ourselves, of course, would be, would be by debating these ideas. And I addressed that question in a previous podcast. We can't, we can't defend ourselves with debate if platforms like Facebook have explicitly racially discriminatory policies which ban only white people from asserting our interests on that platform. And that's why we have an ongoing racial discrimination complaint against Facebook, and I'll probably make another podcast updating about that. So the way that I see it is that the real damage that's being done here is not the fact that someone somewhere is copying and pasting these arguments onto a computer. The real damage that's being done is the fact that these messages are being widely disseminated to a large audience of people. Indeed, that perspective, that interpretation, is consistent with the spirit of the law as it's defined in the, in the criminal code, which specifies that it's not illegal to make statements which promote hatred as long as you, if you make those statements in private conversation. What the law is concerned with is the public dissemination of those messages, because that's where the damage is done. The wording of the law is, everyone who, by communicating statements other than in private conversation, willfully promotes hatred against an identifiable group, is guilty of an offense. It's notable that the, the term hate speech uh, actually doesn't exist in the criminal code. The title of the section is hate propaganda. It's not merely 
speaking the statement which is the problem. It's the propagation of that statement. So who is most responsible for the propagation of these messages? Is it the author of the piece who copied other people's arguments into a Word document and sent it in? Or are the more responsible parties, the people higher up the ladder at the CBC, who made the decision to propagate these statements to their audience of millions of people? So the wording of the law, again, is everyone who, by communicating statements, emphasizing this word communicating this time, everyone who, by communicating statements, other than in private conversation, willfully promotes hatred against an identifiable group is guilty of an offense. From one perspective, it is the author who is responsible for communicating these statements in the sense that she was the one who actually made these statements by putting pen to paper, so to speak. But from another perspective, it's the people higher up the ladder at the CBC who are more responsible for communicating the statements in the sense that they actually disseminated the messages. And so who is most responsible for the actions of the CBC? If being higher up the ladder makes you more responsible, then it follows that the people at the top of the ladder are the most responsible for the actions of the CBC. And the people at the top of the ladder are Catherine Tate, who is the CEO, and Michael Goldblum, who is the chairman of the board. So that's why the first step in this process was not to request an investigation of the author who wrote the article, but of the higher-ups, beginning with the CEO and the chairman of the board, because they are the heads of the apparatus that disseminated these messages and are, in that sense, the most responsible. Now, does that sound ridiculous to you? The idea of going after the people at the, at the top of the corporation? Well, know that, that it's been done before. Um, in September, a hate speech investigation was, was requested against Rebel Media for videos made by Faith Goldie and Tommy Robinson. In that instance, it was requested that the directors and senior officers of Rebel Media be investigated on the grounds that they were directing minds in the dissemination of statements that allegedly promoted hatred. So those are two reasons why pursuing the highest officers of the CBC makes sense. One is that there's a precedent for doing, for doing so. The other is that, in a sense, they are the most responsible for the dissemination of these messages. A third reason is that it's important to me that people perceive that it's the message itself that we're taking issue with and not some individual. And a fourth reason is just to demonstrate our volition and our political energy is such that when you threaten us, we're going to go ballistic and we're going to pursue every crevice in order to address that threat. So that was the first step. Catherine Tate is the CEO. Michael Goldblum is the chairman of the board. Both of them apparently live in Toronto. I live in Toronto. So my first step was to contact the Toronto police. So this is a whole saga in and of itself. Um, I'm done with explaining theory for now. This next part is just to report on all of the bureaucracy and the technicalities of trying to get an investigation going. And like I said, what's fascinating about this process is just that everyone seems so inexperienced with it. In contacting the police, my main objective was just to send them my written arguments as to why this is a legitimate case and why it should be pursued. 
And you can read that whole submission on our website, swciv.com. At one point, we had a summary of the case up on, uh, up on, the, up on the site, which you may have already seen. But now we have the, the full submission up there. So you can study that if you're interested. So the first time I called, this is what happened. By the way, all these calls have been edited to make it easier to listen to. So this is what happened. Uh, hi, I have information in regards to a hate crime, and I'm wondering what's the best way to submit that information. Uh, you can, I believe you can do it online. Okay. You go to the Toronto Police Service website, and you go to um, online reporting, um, and you can just follow the steps and fill it all in. If you have pictures, you can even upload the pictures. Online reporting. Okay, so I'll do a search for that. Thank you. Any problems, just call back and we'll sort you out. Okay, thank you very much. So, you definitely can't report hate crimes online. That guy didn't know what he was talking about. Um, it says so very explicitly on their website. They do have a, an online submission where you can report things like your bike was stolen, but you cannot report hate crimes on there. See what I mean? Not even the police know what they're talking about when it comes to, to hate speech. So I phoned back and I was eventually able to speak with an investigator um, and she told me a few notable things. One was that she didn't know how to file the complaint. Um, and I have, a, I have a letter which has been vetted by a lawyer, um, as well as a copy of the article, uh, which I was hoping I'd be able to submit to someone. Um, what are you hoping to do with this letter? Uh, to petition uh, for, for charges to be pressed. Mm, okay, well, I'm not sure who you would submit that to. Okay. Um, the second thing she told me was that apparently to investigate someone, you have to call the local police stations where those people live. She's, is she, uh, like I've, I've Googled her and it looks like she's in Iqbalit, is that right? Or Nunavut? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah. So even if there were any charges that would be considered through uh, the police, it's, that is where the uh, alleged offense in your mind, the, the hate crime statements, were committed, would have been in Nunavut or where it is that she is? Yes. So the police service that uh, is up there, I, let me see actually, I think they have their own police service, but I'm going to look, so, oh, so RCMP. And she didn't even want to look at my arguments. She flat out rejected the idea of charging the people at the top, which, like I said, is kind of expected because in one sense, they are the most responsible for, for the crime. But at the same time, I can understand someone having the reverse interpretation, which is that they are the most distant from and therefore the least responsible. But for the sake of due diligence, I still made sure to pursue the issue from all avenues. So actually, the, uh, in, the, in the petition that I'm submitting, uh, the, the charges, it's, push, it's pressing for charges to be pressed against uh, the publishers of the article, um, who is the, the CEO and chairman of the board of the CDC, who, who reside in Toronto. Oh, well, and, and you we, would have to ask your lawyer that, because we don't, I would not be laying charges against like corporations or anything like that. So, so really, the main reason I was calling was, I was initially trying to figure out where do we send the petition? I have no idea. I mean, thinking about it, I'm, I would have thought that your lawyer would know something like that. Uh, yeah, but he's, he's not sure. 
Yeah, I'm not either. Um, I've never had anything like that in 24 years happen, so... Okay. Um, would, would it be of value uh, to, to send the information to you? I've got uh, copies of tweets, the article, as well as the, the letter. No, it wouldn't, because I won't be going to charge these two people that you think are responsible for... I would never be going for to, like, a corporation or in that regard, so... I would think a lawyer is in a far better position than I would be to know who you would address something like that with in terms of petitioning to have charges laid. Right. Uh, but it certainly, I wouldn't be doing that. Like, I, I wouldn't lay charges on, I, I don't know if these are the CEOs of CBC or whoever it is that you think is responsible, but uh, I can't answer that question for you, unfortunately, because I don't know. Uh, okay. Um... So uh, maybe I'll, I'll double check with my lawyer, and then is there a way that I can contact you again? Yep, it's 416. So that was that. So the next people on the list were the managing director and the managing editor of the CBC North. Uh, those are uh, Janice Stein, who is the managing director, and Mervyn Brass, who is the managing editor. Now, in my mind, it's this level of management who is most responsible here assuming that they are the ones who made the direct decision to disseminate these statements. The author repeated the statements, but it was the editors who communicated those statements to the public. And apparently they live in Yellowknife. So in accordance with what the police told me in Toronto, I called the local RCMP in Yellowknife. Just getting them on the phone was, was a task. If you look at the website of the Yellowknife RCMP, it directs you to call their non-emergency number. If you call the non-emergency number, it directs you to come into their office to make your complaint, and it doesn't give you an, an option to make the complaint over the phone. If you are wanting to report a non-urgent matter, please attend the Yellowknife RCMP front counter to provide a statement between the hours of 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. Obviously, for me to come into Yellowknife is difficult because it's 5,000 kilometers away or 3,000 miles away. So I went back to the website of the Yellowknife RCMP and they provide an email address. So I sent them an email. They responded to the email and they told me, you can either call the non-emergency number, which I just called, or you can come into the office. I wrote back saying, I already tried calling the number and I can't come into the office because I'm thousands of miles away. So then they told me, well, call the emergency number. And I thought, that doesn't sound like the right thing to do. But I didn't know what else to do. So I called the emergency number. And uh, they didn't like that. I think violates um, Section 319 of willful promotion of hatred against an identifiable group. And where was this posted? Published by the CBC. Well, then you can contact CBC about the article. Bye. Uh, excuse me. That was lots of fun. Let's do this again. RCMP? Uh, I need to report a crime. Yeah, you've already said that if you have a problem with CBC. Uh, yeah. Because you feel that your rights are violated by a vertical they posted. Yeah, it's it's illegal. Sorry, you're cutting out a bit. It's uh, yeah, the it's in violation of uh, Section three nineteen incitement of hatred towards an identifiable group. Okay, no, 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 no,
Then I called back a third time and I spoke to a guy who said what this woman should have just said in the first place. Okay. Have you contacted the lawyer? Uh, yep, I've spoken with the lawyer. Okay. So this is a civil issue, not a criminal code issue? Nope, this is, this is a violation of Section 319 of the Criminal Code, willful promotion of hatred towards an identifiable group. Okay, so if you'd like to launch a complaint about that, you need to call back on the non-emergency line during business hours. I, I did that, and I, I did that, and they told me to call you. The non-emergency line from the RCMP during business hours. Yeah, I contacted them. They said come into the office. I sent them an email. They said call this line. Okay, yeah, this is the emergency line. This is not an emergency complaint. Okay, thanks. As a public service, here's the trick that I discovered. If you need to report a non-emergency over the phone in Yellowknife, you call the emergency, the, non, the non-emergency line, and you ignore all the prompts, and you just push zero. Hello, Yellowknife, RCMP. So I spoke to an officer. I sent him the information. He looked it over, and he got back to me. So this was the most professional experience I had throughout this process, was, was dealing with this guy. Um, but there were still some issues. Yeah, I was just calling to, uh, basically, like I discussed with my colleagues, I did, um, I read your, I read your, um, complaint, the one that you, you wrote, and I, I have to give you credit, it's well, well sourced and well written and stuff, um, but. Ultimately, he refused to pursue a full investigation, uh, and these were his reasons. Ultimately, um, I guess my concern with going forward with charges is the, uh, if he willfully promotes hatred aspect of the uh, of the charge, which I, from having read the article, I, I believe is missing here. Um, again, I've I've read your arguments for it. I've read the case law that you're citing here, and and your your argument for it. But I, I'd have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there was a there was an intent to promote hatred against a group, and the group that we're talking about here is. Uh, I mean, we, we could technically identify, you know, white or white people. The article is, is citing white people. I get that. Um, but he seemed to, to think that one of the necessary components of hate speech is to make a call to violence or a call to action. So that is not the case. Um, he brought that up. I pointed out to him that, that hate speech does not require a call to violence or a call to action. But he continued pressing that point even after I corrected him. She's not necessarily inciting violence or she's not necessarily inciting uh, like concrete actions to be taken against a certain group. She's just denouncing and critiquing. And, uh, and while I will concede that, you know, it's not a very favorable article uh, to, let's say, white people, um, it's not necessarily something that I think I could advance criminal charges on, if you understand um, well, I understand your point that she de- she definitely doesn't um, advance committing violence because that would be a different crime. That would be uh, counseling an offense. Um, but you don't need to um, promote violence to be guilty of uh, hate speech. Uh, yeah, do, do, yeah. Like I, I just what I'm what I'm saying. I'm not I'm not specifically saying that the offense has to constitute violence. I'm just using of something that would be some that, that would be incited. I guess. What, what I'm trying to say here is that uh, um, I, I'm, I'm missing the I'm missing that part of the offense. Like I'm missing where she's 
willfully inciting people to go out and hate a certain group of people. If you infer that she is hating a group of people based off of her critiques, that's an, an inference you're making, but she's, she's not coming out and saying, I hope that, or I am, I am asking everybody to go out and, I don't know, do whatever to white people. It doesn't have to be a physical action, but to, to go out there and, you know, denounce white people, which is not necessarily saying that. She Notice this part where he says, uh, he doesn't detect that she is inciting people to go out and hate white people. Notice that go out part. Think about that. What would that mean to go out and hate white people? As opposed to what? Staying in and hating white people. So again, he seems fixated on the idea of an action and the fact that there's no call to action in the article and no instruction to do something. But the law does not require a call to action or an instruction to do something. So for context, um, James Keegstra is a famous hate speech case in Canada. He was a high school teacher who was convicted of promoting hatred towards Jewish people through the things that he taught in his classroom. He said things such as that Jewish people are treacherous, subversive, sadistic, money-loving, power-hungry, and child killers. There was no call to action. If negative descriptors like money-loving qualify as hate speech, then a negative descriptor like racist is also hate speech. And the same with terms like privileged and fragile and oppressive and colonizer, etc. Yes, she, yes, she said stuff like get on a plane and get out of here or uh, stuff like that, but that, that's, that's not necessarily inciting violence. That's her opinion. And, you know, I mean, you could say that about a lot of different things. See the part where he says, oh, well, it's just her opinion? Every statement in every famous Canadian hate speech trial has been someone's opinion. The fact that it's an opinion is not a valid defense against the charge of hate speech. I, I honestly think that I'm missing a portion of the elements of the offense here. Like, I've, I've read over the, the section there, I've read over 319 sub 2. Um, I've read over the arguments that you're putting forth. I've also taken a look at some of the case law that you cited in, in a couple of different arguments. I understand where you're coming from um, but again I like I, I'm not getting a concrete example of a, of a willful promotion of hatred from this article uh, okay so maybe that's uh, all the information so I that, need. So, so, so that's why yeah so that's why I'm I'm and again this is this is something that I've discussed with my colleague and my supervisor before you know calling you back but um, essentially, that's 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 where we're at now. I I, we, I just don't have enough uh, evidence to proceed with with a charge for that. Um, I know you said you've already explored other avenues for filing a complaint or, or something like that. I don't know if you've explored other civil uh, avenues, but from a criminal aspect, um, I'm not uh, I'm not going to be able to advance with any criminal charges on this. Okay, okay, so that's all I need to know. Thank you. Um, is, is there a number assigned to okay. this uh, instance? Is there a number assigned to this occurrence? Yeah. Uh, I will give you a number, just give me a second. So think about it. Canadians have been imprisoned for saying that Jewish people are money-loving. And this officer is telling me that it's not a form of hate speech to say that all white people are racist. Now... The, the low-hanging fruit here 
would be to attribute this simply to racially discriminatory corruption. And I'm not saying that discrimination isn't a factor. I'll get to that in a moment. But let me also propose some other elements of nuance here. So what I think is a contributing factor in this officer's response is that the concept, the very concept of hate speech laws, which infringe on our freedom of expression, is, I think, a very foreign and counterintuitive idea for people in the West. When it comes to enforcing any kind of speech law, especially enforcing a speech law in defense of white people, the fact that a Canadian, like this police officer, would be instinctively skeptical and resistant is, I think, a manifestation of our cultural milieu. I think that if you were to put it to a vote, the average Canadian, especially the average European Canadian, I think this officer is European, by the way. I got his name and I looked him up. Um, and I think he's white. Um, I think that if hate speech laws were put to a vote, the average Canadian would vote against them in principle. I think that hate speech laws are inconsistent with the typical Canadian's image of what Canada is and what Canada should be. So I think that that's a big part of it, that this officer keeps bringing up this point that, but she's not actually doing anything physical. She's not calling for something physical to be done. She's not explicitly instructing people to do things. She's just promoting thoughts and feelings and ideas. I think that's a manifestation of our cultural norms, that through that lens, I think his response is understandable. Like I said, according to my research, hate speech laws have only been employed a few times in Canadian history. So that's, that's one interpretation of, of this officer's response, is that it's not necessarily uh, uh, 100% due to racially, dis racially discriminatory practices or beliefs. I think part of it is, is the dynamic of uh, the relationship between free speech and hate speech in the mind of, of the typical Canadian. And if that assessment is correct, then what an example of the power and reality of metapolitics and the principle that politics is downstream from culture. The fact that you can have an official law on the books, but if that law is inconsistent with cultural norms, then it isn't going to be enforced. And furthermore, consider all the people who don't even attempt to employ the law for that same reason. And of course, this principle of metapolitics is also applicable if you, if you attribute the officer's behavior to, uh, if, you, if you come up with a discriminatory interpretation of the officer's decision. So notice that he seems resistant to acknowledge that the article is directed towards white people. I have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there was, a, there was an intent to promote hatred against a group. And the group that we're talking about here is uh, I mean, we, we could technically identify, you know, white or white people. The article is, is citing white people. I get that. And also at this part. And while I will concede that, you know, it's not a very favorable article uh, to, let's say, white people. Now, a simplified way to interpret this through the lens of discrimination is to say, here's a guy who has a conscious agenda against white people. But here's a perspective that I have more faith in, which is that let's assume that he's white, because like I said, I looked him up and I think he's white. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't have a consciously anti-white agenda, but, but consider this. One element that could be at play here is this cultural belief that 
white people don't need protection, that we are in the power seats and that our political concerns in the realm of interethnic politics are less serious than those of other people, that our role in that dynamic of interracial conflict is solely that of the aggressor and the antagonizer. And therefore, to act in our defense is less legitimate. And that perspective is enforced by the narratives presented by the film industry, which reinforces this perspective in the popular imagination that white people are the aggressor, white people are in power, and therefore white people don't need protection or that to act in the interest in the protection of white people is less legitimate. So that's one element that I can see being a factor in this officer's decision. Another factor that could be at play is that assuming this officer is white, if he is perceived to be acting in the interest of white people, then he could find himself in the crosshairs because white people who defend the interests of white people get called Nazis and they're persecuted for it. So rather than an explicit consciously anti-white agenda, there's a theory of two factors that could be at play here, which might influence this officer's conduct, this officer to conduct himself in a, in a racially discriminatory way. But here are two follow-up points. If these factors are influencing the officer to conduct himself in a racially discriminatory way, then one, that doesn't necessarily mean that he is morally deficient or corrupt in the traditional understanding of the term. What I'm proposing is just that he might be conducting himself in accordance with the anti-white trends of the culture in which he finds himself. And the second point is that even if the racially discriminatory behavior isn't driven by malice, and even if it's not deliberate, and even if it's not conscious, that doesn't mean that the behavior doesn't legally constitute racial discrimination. In Canada, we have the concept of constructive discrimination. In the U.S., I think it's called uh, disparate impact or adverse effect discrimination, which means that the discrimination isn't deliberate, but it's still discrimination and it's still illegal. If you have a policy or practice which inadvertently discriminates, that's racial discrimination, even if it's not conscious or intended to discriminate. So um, we spoke to that officer. He refused to pursue the charges. You heard his reasons why. So um, in response to that exchange with this officer, we filed an oversight complaint with the RCMP's Civilian Review Board and also a human rights complaint with the Human Rights Commission of the Northwest Territories. And so that concludes what we've done on that front of dealing with the CBC's managing director and managing editor in Yellowknife. And we'll update you as soon as we learn more on that front. And then finally, the, the final character, the fifth character, um, following the, the exchange in Yellowknife um, is the author herself. Because we couldn't get them to press charges in Yellowknife, the next step was reluctantly to call the police in Iqaluit to try to get them to press charges uh, against the author. Uh, like I said, this was my least favorable option. I want people to understand that this is about the ideology and not about the individual. But if we can't get those higher-ups who are more uh, symbolically preferable, uh, then we'll go after the author herself. We have to do everything we can to ensure that someone is reprimanded. We're not going to allow ourselves to be subordinated 
or to be treated as second-class citizens in our own country. So I phoned to Callowit. I spoke to an officer there. Do you want me to give you my email? Yes, please. I sent her the info via email, and she responded saying that she received it and she'll get back to me uh, with a decision. About a week went by, and I didn't hear back from her. So I sent an email, a follow-up email, and asked her what was up, and I got no response. Then I phoned into the office to speak with her, but I was, a form, I was informed that she was away, and I got directed to the desk of her superior officer. Okay, thank you. I got transferred to that desk, but then I went to voicemail. The name on the voicemail was David Lawson. So the next time I called back into the office, I asked to speak to David Lawson because I assumed that that was the the superior of the officer who I had spoken to. And this is what happened. Uh, hello, I'm uh, I'm calling to uh, uh, follow up on a complaint I made. Uh, I tried calling yesterday. Uh, would I be able to speak to David Lawson? David Lawson. Um, I. I, I um, that's what I. That's what I heard from the voice message. I'm actually not sure his name's David Lawson. Oh well, maybe that's just maybe his name is still on the on the answering machine. I'm not sure. Okay, that's a very real possibility. How's that for bureaucracy, eh? The guy hasn't worked there for for years, but his name is still on the still on the voicemail. Anyway, I I did get through to the guy who works at that desk, and he was a sweetheart. Um, so is is there a is there a? Yeah, but that's not the police problem. That's a that's the CBC problem. Take it up with them. Yes, yeah, so they're the ones that are are promoting it. If they're the ones that are publishing it. Yeah, I, I agree that the problem is that the elements of the offense aren't met, and then therefore that's why they put something like that out in the media. Like they do their research before they publish something too, right? Yeah. So, um, is is there a higher level of authority? And so just like just 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 like this, like you have an opinion, and and they have an opinion. Their opinion is backed by legal representation. So is mine. Lawyers as to whether or not so is mine. This is something that they should be publishing or not. Right. Yep. And and so is mine. My my complaint has been looked over by a lawyer as well. Um, and the fact that it's an opinion doesn't. Agree, take it civilly. This is like this is a you know it's, it's a civil process. Uh, well, it was also so, a criminal. So process. take it up with CBC. Yeah, it's already been taken up with CBC, and so this is the the next level that we're taking yeah. it to. Um. Is is there a higher level? Well, like I said, you've already you've already made the. But the phone actually kept cutting out. So uh, when it cut out the first time, I called back. Um, but when it cut out the second time, I figured, okay, this guy's not going to budge. He did make an interesting point, though, which is that the reason why I was phoning the different police stations in Yellowknife and in Iqaluit was because that was the impression that I got from the police in Toronto. They made it sound like I was supposed to call the the local police stations of each individual person who I wanted to address. So I was addressing people in Yellowknife and then people in Iqaluit. But from his perspective, both of those are branches of RCMP. And therefore, because I had made a complaint in Yellowknife, it was essentially the same complaint and that I couldn't make the same complaint again. So uh, we've tried reporting five different people to the police they all shot us down. We filed oversight complaints uh, and human rights complaints. The next step is to do what's called private prosecution, 
which means that we will take our case directly in front of a justice of the peace, which is a judge. Some people might say that we should have just gone directly to private prosecution and not even have dealt with the police in the first place because they don't even know what they're talking about anyway. Um, but I think it was valuable to attempt to go through the police first because one, it helps us to better, it helps us to know where we stand. And two, it unveils problems in our legal system, which might impede on the well-being of Europeans in the future. And now that we're aware of them, we can work towards rectifying them. The two immediate obstacles with private prosecution are one, that the courthouses are shut down because of coronavirus. And two, in order to perform a private prosecution, my understanding is that you can only charge people who are currently within the jurisdiction of the justice of the peace who you're presenting to. That means that JOPs in Ontario can only deal with the CEO and chairman of the CBC because they're both apparently in Ontario. And if we want to petition for charges against people in the Northwest Territories or in none of it, then we're going to have to physically go to the Northwest Territories and none of it. And like I mentioned earlier, Yellowknife is 5,000 kilometers away. Callaway is 2,000 kilometers away. So first we're going to do what we can in Ontario and see how that goes, and we'll update you on that. And if it doesn't work out in Ontario, then the next step would be to go to uh, the Northwest Territories and Nunavut. And uh, so that's what's next. We'll keep you updated.